The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience. I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Welcome back to the Piercing Wizard Podcast. This one is being recorded over Zoom. Uh, I'm Ryan, and I am in Nashua, New Hampshire. And who are you? Where are you at? I'm Lola, um, and I am in Glasgow, Scotland, in my flat where I live. Okay. So we're going to do a kind of a mishmash episode. We're going to talk about a few different things. One thing that I think will be the the meat of the episode will be how to facilitate jewelry returns. Something gets broken and it's covered by the manufacturer's uh, repair policy. How do you get that back to the company, get it repaired, get it back to the client? Some of the kind of everyday parts of that scenario and then some of the things that can be a little bit challenging to try to facilitate. So we'll get into that. But before we go down that hole into something where we might go off on a little bit of a rant, uh, we wanted to talk about some positive news, and uh, it's nice to say that there's potentially some positive news for for BME Zine. So, do you do you want to talk about that, or do you want me to talk about that? I think okay. I know just about as much as you do. Well, so okay, so if you're on Instagram, check out the BME Zine Instagram page because it's it's active again. Nature is healing. Nature is healing. There was a post by Nefarious Lorat, uh, who is the the child of Shannon and and Rachel Lorat, uh, the people who ran BME for years and made such a huge impact on my my career. But the the community, you you really still feel those BME ripples out in the world. And um, if you're sick of hearing me talk about BME, too bad because it was a really important part for me. Some piercers might. Uh, connect to Fakir or Gauntlet. You know, they might be disciples of Jim Ward, Fakir, stuff like that. But I was really like a BME person. That's what gave me my my main exposure to the wide world of body modification when I was in my late teens. And then through my early 20s, when I was a, an active professional, it, it changed everything for me. So uh, it's nice to see that there is some semblance of, of BME zine coming back potentially. And Nefarious has um, posted saying that they're, they're looking for submissions to try to, to make something of it. Un- unfortunately, a lot of the content from the previous BME website has been lost. Uh, it wasn't all archived. So um, Nefarious is kind of starting from scratch in a lot of ways. And, and I think it's really cool. So I'm following the the BME Zine Instagram page, and uh, maybe I'll start submitting some stuff because that was a, a big part of my my work experience early on was not only trying out new stuff but showing other people what I was trying out. Yeah, and shout out to Paul King, piercing historian as well, because he's always reminding everybody archive, archive, make hard copies keep things backed up because none, nothing seems valuable at the time. And like you say, there's so much stuff 
um, that's lost completely um, that there aren't records of. It's just such a good reminder to archive and document everything, even even if you think that it, there's no value in it, you don't have to share it if you don't want to, but just keep it because that stuff it can be it can be so valuable to look at retrospectively. And I think that it's a good reminder if people are starting to take part in BME again um, to archive absolutely everything that they can. Yeah, I lost a lot of stuff from earlier in my career because it was on some outdated digital camera or it was on an old desktop or laptop that has since been lost or recycled or, you know, wiped and resold or, or whatever. So I do have a, a fair amount of stuff, but I don't have nearly as much as I would want. So now I'm kind of in a phase of my career and my life where I'm trying to go back and collect some of the things. Um, and some of it is a bit more expensive to collect it now when I had it just in my hands, maybe 10 or 15 years ago and didn't realize that it would have long-term intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. um, one, one other thing that I got, speaking of uh, something that I can have in my hands now is I got my gauntlet fist weight um, for potentially for a geesh piercing. Um, I have to see what kind of ring it will fit in, but uh, Jim Ward is selling a recreation of a, of a gauntlet piercing weight. That's the gauntlet fist um, mm -hmm. cast in silver. And it's, 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 it's chunky. It's gonna a make good, a knuckle uh, sandwich. Yeah. Knuckle sandwich. It's got a good amount of heft to it. And I look forward to it one day dangling off of one of my appendages, but we'll see. I got to get just the right ring fit for it. So you've got something new where I feel like if BME was a, a little bit more active or once it gets going, maybe we can submit it. But I did scarification on you for the first it time ever. It and I want you to tell me about it. So like, when did scarification cross your mind as something you wanted to get instead of just something that you saw out there in the world? So for years, I didn't like scarification aesthetically. Like it just, I didn't dislike it as a practice, but I just thought, no, I don't really, it's not for me. It's not something I want on me. And it was something that really grew on me as an idea. Um, for years and years, it wasn't ever something that I had thought about having done. And um, obviously, like it, it helps that you're dating a scarification practitioner, obviously. Um, but I mean, it doesn't help in, in quite the way that people might think, because we started talking about this in March of last year. So basically almost a year ago. So I don't want to give the impression this was something that we just did. Um we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it for months and months and months. And it it took a really long time for anything to actually happen with it. I think because we're in a long distance relationship, getting the timings right, getting the trips right, and also just like being in the right headspace to do it um, and the right health to do it and get it done as well. It did take a long time to get round to. So people might think, oh, you can just have this stuff done whenever. Like you, you really can't. Um, you know, even if you're in a relationship with someone that does this work, it's it's still a long process. And um, I think like I don't I can't talk from your perspective, but I think there was also an added sense for you of like potentially I'm going to be looking at this forever. You know, I'm going to be looking at this piece of work that I've done for a really long time. So there's also that sense of like I want to get it right and make sure that it's the right thing to get done, because it's not just a piece of work that you're putting out there into the world. You're going to be seeing it over and over again so there's definitely additional layers to the process I think when you're in a serious relationship to the person as well 
but it did take a, a while for for the idea to come together and I think that part of it I'm not gonna lie like being in a relationship with you there was definitely an added sense of like I want to get a piece of your artwork done it's not that I would ever be against having scarification done from somebody else but I did specifically like the idea of like I want to have something that you've done because I like your work as an artist and it would be like if you were a gourmet chef I would love to eat something that you had cooked for me or if you were a painter I would want something that you had painted hanging in in my flat so there was definitely an element of that that I think pushed me to actually get it done um so it, my experience of scarifications definitely completely changed because sort of 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been interested at all in having something done. And then I think over the years, like seeing people have it done in person at demonstrations and seeing more examples of it and all of the different ways that it can look, um, it definitely like grew on me as an idea. So I think that, that that's maybe different than how some people feel about having it done. Some people have gone years and years always wanting to have it done and some people aren't interested at all for me it was definitely something that that grew over time um which is probably why we'd we'd been dating for several years before i even mentioned it it was nice when you asked me when you asked me the the first time i i wasn't like clamoring to do it because no. i I, <laughs> I didn't know if it was like a like a whim you know because how dare you suggest well, no, like, I would have something done on a whim? This is because people don't know this, but this is because I got my face tattooed quite spontaneously. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it wasn't spontaneous. Like, pl I did plan my face tattoo, but the day that I got it, I did wake up that morning and find out it was being done that day. So it actually happening was quite spontaneous. So I think that you were like just a bit scared that it was uh -huh. one of those things. Yeah. So when you initially asked me, I was like, okay, if you ask me again in three months and you still want it, then yeah, I'm, I'm all about it. Let's, let's do it. Um, scheduling and obviously like we don't live in the same country or even on the same continent. So challenge there. Uh, I was really happy to do it, but like I was intimidated to do it. I, I think that you have a really unique understanding of how of like what my relationship is with scarification now. I think you and probably Kevin Jump are really two of the only people in the world who really understand how really I feel. Weird. Well, it's like, you know, okay. The, every year that passes, I do less and less scarification. I I don't want to like, I don't want to sound cocky, except <laughs> all the times that I do <laughs> sound cocky. But like, I'm I'm good at it. I know I'm good at it. And every year I do less and less of it. And there's, there's part of me that's sad about it. There's also part of me who knows that like, I don't know, to be corny about it, my time has came and went as like a, a an active scarification guy out there, you know? So other people have kind of picked up the torch as to where scarification will go in the future. And I'm just kind of doing whatever I can in the present. So having a piece on you means a lot to me because it's, you know, it, it's living art in a way. I'm going to see it all the time. And zero room for error. If if something did go wrong with it, or if it didn't come out to the best of my ability or whatever, I would just be looking at it for the rest of my life, just being like, God damn it, that one little line. I knew that I fucked that part up. But I think it came out really well. What kind of leaf is it? Um, a plant leaf. A plant, a plant leaf. 
fronds. Fronds. It's a frond. It's a frond. So Lola drew it because that was another thing for me because I I have my relationship with my artistic ability, which is low. Like my technical ability is pretty high, but my artistic ability is pretty low. So um, I I felt most comfortable with with you drawing it. And I think that that kind of worked in like a special way as, as sort of a collaboration between us two. I think that your artistic um, abilities are just applied in a, in a different way. Like I know that you like to be good at the things that you do and scarification is something that you're very good at. So I feel like it's a point of frustration for you when you have an idea in your head and you can't replicate it exactly on paper with a pen. Yeah. But you create artwork all the time and you do design work all the time and you give great direction for the artwork that you want. So I don't think that it's that you lack artistic ability in that sense. I think that you just get frustrated sometimes when you can't put down on paper exactly what's in your head. But you have other ways of doing that because you do design, you do code like design projects with people all of the time. Um, so I think that it's just it's one of those translation things where you you have confidence in so many things. But I think that because you've never had a huge amount of confidence in replicating what's in your head on paper, there's just like a block that's there, like a block that's difficult to get past because yeah. white pages are so intimidating compared to like the human body as a canvas. White mm -hmm. paper is terrifying to look at. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad that we got to do it together. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I think it came out. <laughs> I think it came out nice. And it was it was fun to watch you go through the healing process because you've healed however many tattoos you're pretty covered. Um, and watching you go through scarification for the first time was really entertaining in a lot of different ways. <laughs> like, well, I think that that's part of what I was saying about how, like, I didn't used to to get it in quite the same way that I get it now. Like, um, there are still there are pieces that I think look amazing and there are pieces that I don't particularly relate with. Just the same as with tattooing. There's things you like and things you don't like. But I think because I came from that tattoo studio background, there's always that thing in your head that's like, that probably would have looked better as a tattoo. Why don't they just get a tattoo? That's what they want. They want the effect of a tattoo done in red ink. It's not translating. And there was always that disconnect for me where I didn't quite get it. And then I think being around more people and being more exposed to the art form and seeing it in all of its different forms, you get a much fuller picture in your mind of, okay, this is this is nothing like tattooing. They're completely unrelated and you can kind of grow to appreciate it as its own thing. And I think that until I could appreciate it as its own thing, it wasn't something I really wanted to have done. So I think that that's something that changed over time was like my perception of it. And and it has been like a totally different experience from getting something like a tattoo done. Like I would say that they're completely different. And it has been really fun so far. Like I've been really enjoying the experience of seeing how it's developing, which is going to continue to do for months and months, which is also something you don't get really Um with some other types of body modification is you don't get that on ongoing relationship where you you kind of fall in love with a piece on yourself over and over again as it changes that's been really fun what was the what was the worst part about the aftercare the aftercare was fine like you you kind of psyched me so just in case people are wondering when i go to the dentist why you would wonder that, I don't know. But when I go to the dentist, my dentist talks to me like a little baby. 
And Ryan can confirm this because he went with me to my last dentist appointment. And my dentist, who's a very nice man called Andrew, has to talk to me like a little baby because it's the only way for me to get shit done in the dentist without being a complete wreck. Ryan is not like Andrew. Ryan Mm -hmm. is not capable. He takes scarification so seriously that for me, arguably his favorite person, I would like to think, he is still like completely switched on professional scarification Ryan guy in that moment. Um, and when I'm like, is this going to be sore? He's like, yes, probably. It'll probably be very sore. Like <laughs> He has no sympathy whatsoever. So with aftercare, he was like, right, when you shower for the first time, this is going to be extremely painful. And to be honest, it was just like showering after a tattoo. The showering portion was fine. Like I was prepared for this like blinding pain but it really wasn't any worse than hosing down my belly button after I got that tattooed. That was absolutely... I I think it's because you didn't have any removal. It was just single line. Like if you had removal areas like that, that basically feels like, I don't know, um, like pouring pouring lemon juice on a skin knee. Like it it hurts more with removal. Why can't you just accept the fact that I'm incredibly brave? All right. You're so brave. You're so strong. That's obviously it. Yeah, Yeah, obviously. Okay. Um, so the aftercare was was fine. I I was surprised by the itching because again, tattoo person mentality. When you said it was itchy, I thought that you meant it would be itchy for, for the initial first couple of weeks, but it actually wasn't until it was like a month old that it started itching like crazy. So like that was kind of funny to me. Was like how late into the healing it started to get itchy but like it was itchy in a way like somebody was tickling me and I wanted to find a tree to rub myself against like a bear um so that that was kind of was kind of interesting but yeah I I thought that the aftercare was pretty low low stress low maintenance I mean after you've had your armpit tattooed and had to walk around like a teapot for several days so that so that it doesn't stick back together there's not not really a lot that's going to be that inconveniencing. The biggest thing was not wearing like because it's kind of on the like my where my hip and side meet my tummy was not wearing like high waisted trousers and high waisted underpants to try and prevent like compression over a portion of it. Um, but so far it looks pretty consistent. Um, so I'm enjoying watching it, and I like how it changes depending on the temperature as well. Like yeah. You know, like when I'm hot or cold or something suddenly changes, it'll kind of pop out a little bit. Well, Um, like there. Okay, so I don't know how I can articulate this next thought. And if I sound way too creepy, please let me know. There are certain thoughts that run through my mind when I'm performing scarification and when I see long term healed scarification that I'm done, that I've done. And the, the biggest thing is that I just want to touch it. Like, I just want to touch it, but in a way that uh, wouldn't necessarily be welcomed from like, you know, the professional (laughs) client perspective. Like there are, there are moments sometimes when I'm doing a a scarification piece, a large piece with like really technical removal, especially there might be points where I have to apply gel ointment, whatever at different points. And I can run my gloved hand over it. And it's such a satisfying feeling. You're very tactile though. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like it's it's it such a fit. unique sensation that almost no one else on the planet gets to experience in a really specific way. 
And then it's the same thing with like really well healed scars that, that raise or indent or have some sort of, you know, textural difference. And I'm just really looking forward to like, and I can say this because you're my partner. I'm just looking forward to like touching it and stroking it like as it heals and as it develops more, I just want to touch it. Yeah. I think my biggest fear was that it would just heal and disappear into nothingness because I don't like, I, I heal very quite, quite well, which is a bit rubbish for scarring purposes. Um, so like my, my biggest worry was that it would just disappear. And Oh, it's, it's in there. Remember, remember when I did it and you looked at it in the mirror and you're like, Oh, the lines look kind of thin. Then I was like, not when I do this. And I like give it a little bit of a stretch and the lines just fell open. Yeah. You turned me into a flesh accordion. Yeah, it was great. I like that moment. So speaking about getting it done, I would I definitely have something that I do want to say, which is that, you know, a lot of people say scarification isn't as painful as getting a tattoo. And I just want to say that those people are fucking liars. Mm -hmm. They're lying pieces of shit and they're not fooling anybody. And I'm here to tell the truth. Um, it was definitely like when you started. I like on the outside because you're super strict professional Ryan. I was trying to be very well behaved customer Lola, and I was like, mm, "Yes, that's fine." Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was like, ah, ah. "Like, I, like in my head, all I could think was like, go back, undo it, undo it, cancel it, just abort the plan, roll off the Gee, table." Who, who would have thought that being slowly cut with a scalpel for several hours would be uncomfortable? Right, I was naive. <laughs> um, it was because I've seen lots of other people doing it at various times and they look fine and come to find out that those people are just were just lying to trick me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you've gotten the full Ryan scarification experience. Like you've taken my classes. You've been there when I've done demonstrations. You've seen healed pieces and then I got to do one on you. And now you're seeing that heal and you get to see super serious Ryan. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, you've gotten you've gotten the full show. But I'm I mean like I'm glad that I did it and I think the experience was really interesting and it's definitely not like anything that I've like felt before or had done before. So I like I have only positive associations with the experience even though it was incredibly painful, which I think is always something that like other people that have had body modifications can relate to in this weird way where it's like you can have a really painful experience but still only have positive associations with it even though it was really uncomfortable and sore i don't know if i would have anything else done but only because i don't know if there's anything else i really want like i really really wanted to get the design that we did together i didn't just want to get something for the hell of it like i really specifically wanted that so i wouldn't be against getting more things done but at the moment i got the exact design that i wanted and i feel like it looks exactly like what i had in my head well good i'm not in any rush to do more so <laughs> let's not worry about it yeah all right well let's let's wrap that up and move on to things that might be more interesting to listeners well oh, oh no it's, it's interesting but like if people aren't into scarification they're probably going to care less about a scarification story than they would a, a piercing related story so um for part two of this podcast this is definitely the first time that we're recording this definitely didn't re-record it it's definitely not several days later and no. we're definitely still on zoom and not face to face in person in glasgow definitely not for um continuity purposes right this is exactly the same as 10 minutes ago when we were talking about scarification yeah um so 
we wanted to talk about facilitating jewellery repairs because it is a part of our business um, and there are a few different aspects to it we wanted to discuss. We wanted to discuss, um, first of all, um, implementing a policy for that in your own studio. Um, we wanted to talk about why it's maybe not the best idea to tell clients that they can return their items to other businesses. And we also wanted to talk a little bit about what it means when a manufacturer has a warranty or a guarantee on the products that they sell as well. So to get into it, I know that you, Ryan, have a system for uh, repairs. And I should clarify as well, when we're talking about returns, we're talking about returns for broken pieces, not returning an item because someone's changed their mind on a sale. You have um, a system in place for that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what your system is? So. If this gets too long at any point, just give me a nudge and, and I'll shorten it down. But let's say somebody comes in with a piece of jewelry that they bought from my studio and there was a, a reasonable breakage, a breakage that would be covered by a manufacturer's warranty policy. Um, what I would do is, number one, you have to take that piece of jewelry and you have to give it a really thorough cleaning. Uh, if you're going to send back a piece of body jewelry for a repair, you can't send it back with people's like biological debris on it and that can accumulate pretty easily in things like prong settings and, and whatever. Worn jewelry will tend to have a little bit of a biological debris on it. So in my studio um, first we would do uh, an enzyme bath but even before that we want to talk to people about what the breakage might be. We want to tell them please bring your jewelry in in a plastic bag. Don't just bring the piece in in general and drop it down on our counter. So people bring their jewelry in, hopefully in a little plastic bag. We're going to put on some gloves, take it out of that bag, put it into a plastic cup, and then fill that with uh, enzymatic foam. The enzymatic foam will break down some of that biological material. Once that's broken down a little bit, then that jewelry is going to go into a, a, a dirty jewelry ultrasonic. We'll clean the jewelry with an ultrasonic, get rid of uh, the rest of that visible biological debris. Then we're going to dry it. We'll put it into a package, and then we'll autoclave it because a lot of these companies do want uh, packaged and sterilized jewelry, but they also want it cleaned prior to that. You don't want to just take something that has biological debris, drop it in a sterilization pouch and throw it in your autoclave. You want to properly clean this so that when it gets to the company, all they have to do is open the package and start in on the repairs. Uh, sometimes a, a vendor might send jewelry back to you if it's not clean. Uh, some vendors might charge you a, a cleaning fee and, and not a low cleaning fee. Um, so first off, you have to you have to do all that work and all that labor. Um, that is one of the factors why I think it can also be a little bit frustrating if someone comes to you trying to facilitate a, a repair or a return for jewelry that you didn't purchase because there is a lot of labor th th that goes into just being able to send jewelry back to a vendor. So what are your thoughts on some of that? Well, I think um, just to kind of add on to what you were saying there about processing returns in your studio, one of the main takeaways is that you have a system and that you're not waiting for something to happen to then retroactively implement a system like you have a system in place for that. So I would just encourage anybody listening that doesn't have a system because maybe this hasn't happened to them yet to put one in place on paper so that clients have that to refer to so they know what to expect as well. Um, Regarding what you were saying about um, piercers um, advising their clients to return items to studios that they didn't 
uh, buy them from. Saying it out loud, it does sound ridiculous, but it's something that's happened to me several times. And I, I did make a post about it on my own personal Facebook because it's it's been happening to me for years. And for some reason, it's been happening more lately. And I don't know 100% why that is, but there have been... I have a theory when you're done. There have been piercers apparently who um, their client experiences a breakage, right? It happens. And then maybe because geographically they're closer to me, they'll say, oh, you should take it there. And I can't really understand why, because they could also post the item back to the studio they purchased it from, pretty much no matter where they are in the world. And um, we were kind of having a conversation about how when you adopt the risk of a sale that you didn't make, you become liable for that piece of jewellery, you become responsible for that piece of jewellery. So in addition to the work regarding disinfection and sterilisation and packaging that you were talking about, we're also talking about international exports of jewellery when we're talking about returning a piece of jewellery to, for example, the US from the UK or from Spain to Canada. Like We're talking about international exports. It's not the same as shipping domestically within the US. Um, So I think that that is a lot more complicated than some people realize. And I had a situation recently with a person who I had never met or spoken to or sold anything to who said, oh, this person told me I could just drop this off here and you'd send it back for me. And I was like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, like that's not a service that I offer or that I've ever professed to offer. I can only apologize. And, and I had to say, um, you know, if this was purchased in the US, you know, you can post this back to the US, back to the original, because all, that's all I'm going to be doing. I don't have a special way to fast track this repair. Um, so if you post it back, that means you can track it. You can send it back to the studio you purchased it from. They're going to have the purchase information on the piece. I have none of the information about this, and I would be accepting all of the responsibility now for this broken piece. So when I make a sale to one of my customers, I'm 100% responsible up to the extent that my sales policy allows. And I think I have a very robust sales policy. I really try to protect my clients and their purchases above and beyond far exceeding the the statutory requirements that are are needed by me. And um, I'm completely responsible for those sales and for repairs and replacements that, that fall into that category. I don't think it's unreasonable to draw a line and say, I can't accept responsibility for a sale that I didn't make. Um, and I don't think there's anything at all wrong with businesses that are prepared to manage those returns and accept those returns. I don't think that there's anything wrong in that, but I do think it's up to the individual business and piercers do need to just recognize and respect the fact that businesses are unique and they are ran differently. And we probably shouldn't make assumptions about what we can send clients to other shops for without verifying that. Yeah, my my thought on it, like I don't think that piercers are malevolent when they do this stuff. Like I don't I don't think that they're being no. rude or mean. I just think that some of these scenarios might be newer to a studio. So my studio has been in business for a while. I've I've dealt with lots of repairs over the years. Not because like companies are making bad jewelry. Even companies that make the best jewelry will occasionally have a piece break. Uh, it's just the law of averages. But the, the, the bigger things that I see when, when um, maybe other studios kind of refer something like that out, I think that it comes from a good place in their mind where they're trying to say, I want to make it as convenient as possible for the end user, for the, for the, the piercing client. Um, and you know, so if a, if a studio is more geographically convenient for them, 
um, it might make sense in their mind because I think it comes from the same place as the the downsizing referral conversation that we had where they might want to pull that card out of their deck and say, I want to make things so easy for you that I can even find you a shop that's 10 minutes down the road where you can go and you can get further maintenance. It, it kind of started in a way in the industry with like, um, oh, you need a, a, a new piece of jewelry or you need some aftercare spray? Go to this shop. They're great. They're going to carry it. Then it kind of turned into, you're going to need this downsized. Oh, you don't live here? That's okay. I know a shop that, that's in that area. Maybe you could contact them about downsizing. So I think it kind of comes from that same progression of trying to make things easier for the client. But I think that if you do it in, in that exact way without involving the, the other studio, I think it makes it a lot less convenient for the client because then the client might have to get this uh, unexpected no. And it's the same no that they're going to get in your studio and it's the same no they're going to get in my studio because that's that's my policy. I'm sorry, uh, we didn't sell that jewelry to you. That's not something that we can facilitate. And for me, it's because of the liability issues that, I, that I've run into before. A story that I, I've, I've told before, I think I might have told it on the podcast, was about a pair of um, really fancy eyelets from Anatometal. A customer um, had some, some breakages on the gems. Some of the gems fell out of the setting and um, they didn't live in the area where they bought the, the, the eyelets. Um, they contacted that studio and the studio was like, hey, you know, Precision sells Anatometal. They can handle a return for you. And if it was something as simple as like a gem fell out, we can just pop it in the mail and Anatometal will fix it and send it back to maybe the client, then that could have been easy. But that's not really what the, the reality of the scenario was. The jewelry was a little bit abused by the client. So the repair didn't fall under a, a free warranty type repair from Anatometal. The jewelry wasn't really taken care of to the, the level that they would have hoped. So some of the jewels were cracked, some of the jewels were missing, and um, they kind of saw it as maybe more a, a little bit of a abuse on the part of the, the wearer. So they told me there's going to be a charge for whatever gems we have to replace. Uh, it was all reasonable what they were explaining for the charges. Um, but then there would be shipping and there would be shipping insurance on top of having to process the jewelry and sterilize the jewelry and package and ship and, and do all those things. And um, when, when they kind of just hit me with, and it's going to cost this much, then I had the moment where I was like, but I didn't sell the jewelry. I, I, I didn't make any money off of this jewelry. This isn't my client. Um, I can't really facilitate this. I can't really be held responsible for this. There are so many other issues. Uh, what if something were to go missing in the mail, which can totally happen? And if I didn't have insurance on it, then it would be my responsibility to, to fully replace that. So there are a lot of things that come up as a complication. So I, I think, as you said, it is realistic to just have your own policy and to stick to it. And if you're a studio out there and you want to try to um, facilitate a repair outside of your studio, I think it should probably start with contacting another shop and saying, is this something you can take care of? Or directing your client to contact the studio and ask them that question. Is this something you can manage for me? Is this something you can facilitate for me? But it is within that business's right to say, I'm sorry, that's not something I can do because of liability or because of whatever other reasons. And there can be a really long list of reasons why you wouldn't want to have to take on a job like that. It could just be a bad experience as well, like you had. I think we've all had those situations where 
all of a sudden you're several you're several hours into a task that you kind of just took on out of the goodness of your own heart as a favor and then hours into the process you're like why didn't I just say no and I think yeah we yeah. have those situations sometimes that kind of like teach us to maybe be a little bit firmer um, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with having professional boundaries like that as long as you're being responsible for the work that you're doing yeah and like you say I, I don't think that it's malicious I think it comes from a place of trying to be helpful um, but I also think you know doing a little bit of legwork um, checking out studios websites or dropping them an email before volunteering them for services that they're not known to offer yeah um, is, it's kind of like you can draw a distinction in another way because I think some people might hear this conversation and be like well how hard is it just help them it's harder than you think but imagine it this way imagine if a client really wanted to get a genital piercing that you didn't offer and you said just go to this studio. Don't contact that studio. Just go to that studio and expect them to do the genital piercing. What if that studio also doesn't do that genital piercing? Then you're not really helping the client. You're just kind of, you know, sending them off and hoping that somebody else will help them. But I think it's better to maybe confirm first. That way you're really helping the client because you can say, well, you know, I tried this company, but you know, they're not offering this, this piercing or, you know, I can't have you just ship it back directly to a customer, uh, to a company all these different things. So I think it's it's better help to the customer if you do a little bit of the legwork first and you make sure that the person you're referring them to can actually take care of the service that they need. So talking a little bit about manufacturer warranties, something that I wanted to go into a little bit were some of the differences in terminology um, that people use. Like sometimes people say, warranty, sales policy, lifetime insurance guarantee. policy, lifetime guarantee, all of these words mean different things. And sometimes, depending on your location, they can have different legal connotations as well. So what I don't want to do is get bogged down in the specifics of like what I do, because it's specific to my location. So the first thing that you need to consider if you're having any kind of sales policy, and I think the term sales policy is really good because it's very broad and it just refers to the terms of your business basically, is look at what your legal minimum obligation is first, because it doesn't matter what your sales policy is if it doesn't meet the legal minimum obligation. So that's the first thing that you need to look at. And then you can add on that to whatever extent you feel is appropriate. It's important not to tell clients they have an in, they have insurance on the piece because an insurance agreement is an actual real legitimate agreement you would have. So unless they happen to have an insurance policy with you on paper, definitely don't use that terminology. Some of the terminology that you're using is all, it's also important to mention is very UK specific. Mm -hmm. Like in the US, um, things are are very very different. Like if I had to send back a repair, it's relatively simple. I clean the jewelry, I can send it back. If I send it back priority mail, that already comes with a little bit of insurance. But if you have to send something back from the UK, you're going to have to pay international shipping, plus you're also going to have to pay uh, import or export tax. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to the whole like um, legal obligation, like Americans don't have that don't have right. legal obligations for return policies in and the things UK like we do there is like the UK consumer standard which affects everything that's sold in the UK which guarantees any consumer a minimum amount of, of rights when they make a purchase and we're not exempt from that and we, like I say we don't have to get into it but if you are in the UK or whatever country you're in find out your your legally obligated minimum for sure and then when you start to create a sales policy just be mindful of that terminology and what it really means 
Um, so talking about warranties and lifetime guarantees, something that's come up more and more is the term lifetime guarantee, parentheses, for manufacture defect. Mm-hmm. And when people people ignore the second part and they just hear lifetime guarantee and they think it doesn't matter what happens to my jewellery, how like how it's mistreated or what accidents I have with it because there's a lifetime guarantee. A lifetime guarantee against a manufacture defect is there for the benefit of the piercer selling the piece because it means if they purchase the jewellery and maybe it sits in their cabinet for three years and isn't sold and then they go to sell it and a gem falls out or the pin snaps, that could be considered, okay, this, this piece seems to be defective. You can send it back because on installation or at the point of sale or thereabouts, there was an error that highlights the piece must be defective or seems to be defective. And that would protect you against that. It doesn't mean if the piece ever breaks. I mean, I don't know about you. I've had pieces come back that have mysteriously broken, covered in scratches, covered in tool marks. And, you know, not to not to suggest that people are dishonest, but I've, I've had more than a couple of clients with breakages say it just fell off out of nowhere. I have mm-hmm. no idea what happened. And then you look at it and it, there's visible damage to the metal. Well, that's what so, that's what I ran into with with that anatomical experience, because at the time I was still using terminology like, oh, yeah, there's a lifetime guarantee on this jewelry. You'd use that as a selling point sometimes mm-hmm. to give clients that extra little bit of confidence that like you're spending, you know, maybe more on body jewelry than you than you might have in the past. But don't worry, it comes with a, a lifetime guarantee. Um, but that was really, again, one of those scenarios where it's like, well, okay, we, we can't say that because that's not what these companies are offering or even implying. What they're saying is, if we make something and we made it in some sort of a, a, a defect, you know, again, a loose gem setting or a defective thread or a defective pin or a pin that snaps or something like that, we're happy to cover that because uh, we see it as a as a manufacturing defect. But it's not the same thing as if something goes wrong, you know, misuse, mishandling, abuse, something like that. That's not something that a lot of these companies are are going to to cover for free. So my my sales policy, just to talk a little bit about mine, and again, it's unique to my business, is that I cast a really wide net for things that I'll accept and that I'll work on a replacement or return or repair for, um, regardless of whether or not the person's had an accident or not. Like I accept that liability as my own personal choice as a business owner because something that I take really seriously is matching up the right jewelry for the right location, using the right pieces to help minimize my breakages to an absolute maximum because you really shouldn't be getting a lot of them. If you are, that might indicate a different problem. So I cast a really broad net. I try and so that clients don't feel the need to make up stories. I've had clients who've just said, look, I I caught it. I snapped it. Is there anything you can do for me? And we'll work with them under my sales policy to get them a repair, get them a replacement because I want clients to have those confidence. But there are limits to that. So I do try and make very clear to customers that I'm working with these manufacturers. It's not me that's doing the repair. And oftentimes when we're getting a replacement, we're out of pocket for that replacement so I think that it's important to try and have an open dialogue with your clients about that and something else that might be useful I don't know what the implications of this would be in the US but um, if someone's buying a very expensive piece of jewelry from me and they say you know what's the sales policy on this I'll tell them what my policy is and what the limitations of that are but I'll also say listen you bought a piece of jewelry here you have a receipt for it 
if you have content insurance, home insurance, see about having it added. It's no different than if you had a wedding ring or someone give you a necklace. It's an expensive piece of jewellery. So if you have an, a personal insurance policy, try and get this added to it. That's another avenue that you can take. And I've had some customers say, oh, I, I would have never thought of that because the connection isn't there where they see their body piercing jewellery as traditional jewellery. But if you can document the value that was paid for it, that might be something that you could do as well. Yeah, I mean, I probably wouldn't mention that to someone unless they were spending, yeah, you know, oh, I'm saying if it's a really baller jewellery money or jewelry. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when it comes to the, like, the the more everyday jewellery, um, you know, I, I've, I've dealt with uh, breakages and repairs from just about every vendor, and they all have very different policies. I've found that uh, a lot of the titanium and, and steel manufacturers, uh, if you contact them and say, hey, a, a pin snapped or a gem fell out of a setting or something like that, um, typically what they'll do, and like what Neometal does as, a, as one example, they'll say, okay, send us a photo of the jewelry and especially try to send us like a detailed photo of uh, the breakage and then fill out this form and we're going to just give you a, a credit on your account and then I can just buy a replacement. Because the jewelry for them, you know, it's not a precious metal. It's a very small piece of jewelry. It's not something that really could be repaired. You can't really like weld one of those tiny little titanium pins. So really the only way to um, get the customer a a new piece is to get them a a replacement piece rather than a repaired piece. But when it comes to gold vendors, Body Vision is a good example. A lot of their jewelry is a little bit higher in cost, but gold is also a, a softer material. It's easier to work with. It's easier to repair with things like soldering or you know resetting a gem, things like that. So a lot of those gold companies, they're going to prefer you to clean the jewelry and send it back to them. Now, some gold vendors, if they're um, uh, like a, a bulk manufacturing gold vendor, rather than like a bespoke uh, per piece gold manufacturer, some of them might say, send it back to us and we're just going to send you a completely new piece um, rather than repairing uh, this piece. So like every company will have its own uh, preferences. So what I've also gotten into the habit of doing now is when a, a client contacts me and they say, I've broken this piece. If it's not a face-to-face conversation, if it's a phone call or an email, could you please just like, give me some detail about how it might have gotten broken and I'm going to contact the company and I'm going to ask uh, if this falls within their manufacturing and, and repair policies. Sometimes the company will say, yep, we'll cover that, no problem, send it back, there's, there's no cost. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, because of this and that wear and tear, um, there will be this repair fee. It's usually very small, very minimal. Um, But that's the kind of clarification that I want to get from companies. Some companies are going to require a return authorization number. I know Anatometal is one of those companies. If you just put something in an envelope and send it back to Anatometal, chances are um, the the delivery will be rejected and it'll get sent back to you without that return authorization number because I think that they've just probably run into some frustrations with people just sending in jewelry that can't be repaired. Um, or that can't be repaired uh, for zero cost, all those different things. So sometimes these companies want to know just the broad strokes of what might have happened to the jewelry. I've had to facilitate repairs before where there have been like hilarious accidents, the one that we talked about before with Mm -hmm. like the dog chewing up a piece of of jewelry, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, But what I also do now is I also document all those things back and forth between myself, the company, and the client so that there isn't any sort of confusion about any potential charges, any potential wait time, any potential liabilities. 
I have a, a form that they fill out. It's an actual paper form. I have one of those like, you know, I keep the white copy, you keep the yellow copy type forms. Mm -hmm. We'll write down the vendor and a description of the jewelry, when it was received, any sort of policies that we've been given from the company in, in relation to cost. Um, and then I keep a copy, the client retains a copy, then we send the jewelry off to the, um, the, the, the companies. But all these things are based on a policy. So if you don't have a policy in your studio, sit down with your staff, sit down with your owner or your manager and write a policy on this stuff because it will save you so much time and frustration in the long run. Yeah, I think the main takeaway here is just that there's there's a pre-existing policy in place to help you decide what to do, what's appropriate. Clients don't always want everything for free. I mean, I'm sure they appreciate everything for free, but they don't always want everything for free. A lot of clients aren't going to be very upset if they learn that they've had an accident and they have to pay a small charge, whether it's to cover shipping or whatever else. A lot of them won't be terribly upset about that if it means they can still get the repair done as long as it was communicated to them. Whereas if you're just kind of saying, oh yeah, lifetime guarantee, lifetime guarantee, then understandably they're going to be upset because that's quite misleading and it's not entirely accurate. So that's what that can then create conflict. And I've had a couple of situations where clients have said, well, I've read that this has XYZ guarantee and I've had to kind of say, well, this is what that means and here's how that's different from this situation that you have and here's what we can do and try and, you know, talk them back from the buzzwords and the adverts and things that yeah. they see online. So I think being able to just it's part of being able to control your working environment and be in charge of your business and not letting it be kind of ruled by by third party advertising and by what other studios are saying as well. And I think the best way to do that is to have something on paper or on your website or like how you have the carbon copy forms um, so that they at least have the information because it's the absence of the information that causes the problem, I think. Yeah, when you have to kind of panic in a moment and be like, uh, this, that's when a lot of conflict comes up because you might panic and, and say something uh, that you didn't mean to say. You might make a promise that you can't keep. Uh, different things like that. And I've got that stuff on my website. I've got that stuff on my release form too. On the release form, it says all the different things about, you know, medical conditions and all other sort of like legal things that we have to include. But it also says if there are any repairs outside of the manufacturer's express, uh, expressly posted warranty policy, manufacturing policy, repair policy, it's the responsibility of the client to, to pay for any of those repairs. So um, I, I find that it just helps to clarify everything up front and to try not to make um, promises that, that just aren't realistic to keep. And then, you know, the same thing about sending stuff out to other studios. Contact the studios first and make sure they're open to those kinds of referrals. And like I said before, your, your breakage rate, in my opinion, should be less than 1% of your sales. Oh, I, I wouldn't even know how to make a percentage, but I would say well, that I, mean, I can kind of track it. Look at the average amount of sales you make per month. Mm -hmm. Um, and say you're getting one breakage per month, that would be less than 1%. Well, I mean, I get that. I get yeah. like how you would like... It's math is what I'm saying, <laughs> oh right? God, so imagine you have 12 uh, um, okay. apples. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. What, I, what I'm trying to say is sometimes it might be uh, in, disproportionate to the rate that you sell them at. Sometimes you might sell a thousand of something and then just coincidentally they all break in this three-month period two years down the road. Yeah, so what I mean is just generally... That's the kind of breakage rate you should have. It doesn't need to be one a month. It could be there's nothing for a few months and then a few come along at once. But if this is becoming a problem that's becoming unmanageable, um, 
then I would I would try and look at the source of what might be causing the excess breakages as well, because there are a lot of different reasons for that, um, including things to do with installation and material handling. What and, kind of backing and, you're on? Yeah, what kind of backing huge, you're on? Huge, huge differences enormous. there. Um, I, I once had, a, I won't get into the specifics, but I once had an incredibly expensive piece of jewelry break because I had installed it on the appropriate size post and backing and the client then changed it to a completely inappropriate kind. And it was one of those moments where you just wanted to like bite off your fingers or something like they sent me the picture and I opened it and I was just like how did it end up on that thing Mm -hmm. and you know you don't control that stuff when somebody leaves you can try and advise them as best as possible but it is their property Um, so I think um, if it is becoming that much of a problem then try and hone in on on what some of the causes might be even if it means you don't sell some pieces for certain placements that's a huge thing in my studio i think it is in yours as well um that i don't make every sale if i know something is a big red flag for a breakage i'm gonna be like please don't buy this and wear that there it's an awful idea yeah 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 uh do you think it's worth mentioning the whole concept of like sometimes it's cheaper to just give them a replacement rather than facilitating the whole repair Um, especially with shipping absolutely especially with international shipping as well there's international shipping that's a factor and then there's also the factor of your labor like what is your time worth in all of this like how much is an hour of your time worth and how long does it take you to facilitate a repair and i'm talking not just to reprocess the jewelry to get it sent back but in terms of actually shipping the piece in terms of doing the emails back and forth in terms of getting in touch with the company like you were saying you were emailing back and forth with the supplier so add up all of that in your mind is it an hour is it two hours is it 20 minutes and depending on what that amount is if you think my time could really be better spent doing something else it might be better to just tack on another piece of jewelry to your next order especially if it's a good customer like i've had i've had many customers with breakages that have been able to retain their business and they've they've continued to be good customers because they've been able to handle the breakage you know as easily as possible so that's that's always what we try and do and sometimes it doesn't work out that way because we're only one part of the situation there's the manufacturer and there's the client so we can do our best to facilitate and i think the majority of the time it works out very well Um, but again this is one of those reasons why i just choose not to accept returns from other businesses because i'm already putting quite a lot of work into trying to make this experience a good one for my clients and I think that there's value in that. I think that it's worth something. And and I'm I'm not prepared to, to take on um, the extra risk and the extra, as you say, liability um, of taking possession of an item. Because once you've taken possession of it, it then becomes, for lack of a better phrase, your problem. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, like, like, let's say a client of mine moved out of my area, had a breakage. I could potentially try to contact a studio that I was already familiar with and say, is this something you could facilitate? But my first instinct is always going to be, send the jewelry back to me. I will take care of this for you. Send the jewelry back to me. I will handle the processing. I will handle getting it back to the company and then getting the jewelry back to you. Uh, We might potentially need to have a conversation about shipping costs that way, but I would rather take full responsibility for my sale and if it's going to end up in another studio for that, um, you know, facilitating the repair, I want to make sure that that studio is cool with it. I want to contact them first and I want to make sure that that's something that they that they offer for a service. And I also just want to mention as well that I wouldn't in any way see it as a negative if a studio 
declined to accept a repair for an item that they didn't sell because something else that I think gets lost in translation is the difference in scale between some businesses. I mean, like, I'm very proud of my business. I think it works really well, but it's a very small business. And when you compare that to some of the studios that you see in other parts of the world that look like mega studios that have facilities that I'll never have, I can completely understand why to them it might just be a drop in the ocean to take on one more repair and they might have a better setup to deal with that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with them accepting that. But I also don't think there's anything wrong with me saying no, thank you. Mm, yeah. Well, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it, and I would just encourage anybody out there listening, find the policy that, that fits your studio the best. That's just the, the main thing I want you to take away from it is have a policy. Yeah. Find your policy and then, you know, stick to it. But it, I, I think it's the, the right of every studio, of every business to, to find what's the right policy for them. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, just that I think that we should be uh, praised for how good a job we did of not spiraling into an angry rant this week. Yeah, because we would never do that and then we hastily re-record it at That's the last not, minute. That doesn't sound like something that we would do, no. to be fair. I no. don't even know why I'd bring that I, up. We're so. very sound-minded individuals. Yeah. yeah. Me especially. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Piercing Wizard podcast. We'll talk about more stuff soon and you know I, I go into so many of these episodes just being like I just want to spread some positivity and get it out there and then I open my mouth I think that, that was pretty positive and helpful I think that's like real information that people can take away and use and implement if it's not something that they've thought of before yeah I, I get self-conscious sometimes when when people hear us talk out our ideas on the podcast where, where they might be like well I just won't refer anybody to, to Precision anymore or to Forest anymore. Yeah. And it's like, mm, but I the, get it. I get it. I, I think that that would be, I mean, I don't want, don't want to sound um, unfair, but I think that that's their problem because I think that we would be happy to accept referrals and are happy to accept referrals and make referrals all the time. If a business draws a professional boundary and communicates that to you in a professional way, if you're going to say, well, I'm not sending referrals there anymore, that's, you know, that's that's a you thing. Um, so I wouldn't feel self-conscious about that at all. I think that that's coming from one direction that you're not in control of. Yeah. Yeah. We're very nice and we, we work very hard to take care of our clients. You're nicer um, than me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But like there, there does have to be a line sometimes where it's like you, you put in so much time and effort to, to try to take care of people. And I know that part of that part of that is referring out to other shops sometimes when maybe it's more convenient for the client. So yeah. I don't, I don't want to dash people's hopes. I just want people to kind of think about the other businesses out there because they might be very different from yours. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, thanks for listening to another upbeat episode of, um, the, the piercing wizard podcast. Yeah. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk about, I don't know, puppies next time. Puppies. Something puppies. Yeah. No dogs allowed in the shop. Anyway, I've been Ryan. This has been Lola. And we're done talking. So, bye. Peace. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved.
Talk, 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 talk. Say something. Hello. Say something more than one word. I'm Lola Slider. We're going to have beef ramen for dinner um, with no mushroom because mushrooms taste awful. Um, and everyone that says that they don't are just saying that just to fuck with you to get you to eat one so they can laugh at you. And don't be one of those people who is like, oh, you just haven't had a mushroom that you really like. Piss, just piss off with that, that whole thing. Let people not like foods that they don't like. Um, and then we're going to get a side of tempura, um, maybe, maybe Diet Coke. I don't know why people think that we have bad attitudes. <laughs>